and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter, and your host of today's podcast, the final one for 2019. I'm joined by Neil Jones, Director of Tax Banter. Neil, welcome back to Tax Yak, to our 35th and final episode for this year. Thanks, Robin. And those 35 seem like they're you know, just a couple, but that's a lot and a, a well done for the year's efforts on the uh, podcasts. And I think I'm particularly proud that we've now got uh, listeners in 50 countries around the world. So, yeah, great achievement over that the past year or so. Well, Australian tax is relevant no matter where you are in the world. Look, we've got a listener in the Ivory Coast, so I am scratching my head as to how someone there is interested in Australian tax. But Could be an expat. Could be, could be. So, could we just recap on the year? It's been a hell of a year. Lots of changes. It is. Uh, lots of changes, but still more to come. And I suppose that comes with an election year going to have some downtime from the parliamentary process. Uh, we lose a few sitting days, but really the government's agenda is probably, you know, about half of what they wanted to achieve has been achieved. Uh, they have done some of their program, but there's still a lot to occur. And as we close out 2019, we're being told we will get some things before the end of December. But as we sit here and record today on the 17th, we're still waiting for certain things to occur. So a bit frustrating in the slow pace of change. So whilst there's been a lot of change, Robin, there's still a lot of things to be done. Well, if we go back to the, um, not individual measures, but there were more than 80 measures which were being carried over from the previous parliament, only some of those have actually gone through. Yes, and that, that's the frustration, I suppose, as an advisor. I mean, how do you give advice to a client? in this world of uncertainty where an announcement has occurred which impacts perhaps your day-to-day business or a transaction, but you don't know what the final picture looks like. Look, I haven't had a question last week in a session where law's gone through, but there are questions about how it's going to work in practice, and we don't know yet because the ATO is still to provide some guidance. And that perhaps reflects on the level of the changes that we're making. Are they, you know, any tax system you want certainty, equity, fairness... That certainly is pretty important as a key element of any tax system. And if we're not, if we're passing laws and you're still uncertain as to how they operate, and you're waiting for the regulator, the administrator, to tell us how it's going to apply in practice, it's probably poorly designed law. I agree. So Parliament has adjourned for the year. They will resume on Tuesday, the fourth of February. And looking back on the sitting weeks this year, which were obviously interrupted with the federal election back in May. 10 sitting weeks this year is all that Parliament sat for. So that has clearly limited the the opportunities for legislation to be debated and passed. It does. And I suppose as we closed out 2009, we were hoping that some of these measures would proceed. But like any political process, it gets bogged down by the politics. And uh, you only have to look at the number of divisions, either to stop someone talking or to suspend standing orders. And we get caught up in the politics of Parliament, which is understandable. So with only 10 sitting weeks for the year, you can't achieve a lot. So either we sit more often or we get on with the business of governing. Now, a majority in the Senate would make that easier. But we haven't seen that since the Howard days. No, so we haven't got that at the moment. So, And I'm not sure Morrison's government's ready to go to a double dissolution again, even though they perhaps have a number of triggers that they could pull fairly quickly to go back to the people. I'd suggest it actually backfired on Turnbull when he called the double dissolution to clean up the Senate and he ended up with more independence than he'd had previously. Yes. So as we've closed out 2019, Robin, I suppose the main thing that's happened is the uh, government's handing down of the MIAFO, 
the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook, so that mini-budget, but I was looking for a little bit more than what we got um, yesterday, and as we're recording this, it was handed down yesterday. Um, you know, the Reserve Bank's been trying to stimulate the economy by cutting interest rates. Wages growth is pretty negligible. Um, we do need to give the economy a bit of a kickstart, and we're just not seeing any direction from the government to do that. Now, they've brought some forward some infrastructure spending. That'll create a few more jobs. It'll create some economy. One speculation that I thought may have happened that turned out not to was the acceleration of the tax cuts already legislated. They could have brought those forward, put some money in people's pockets and maybe stimulate the spending that way. I don't think we'll ever go back to Kevin Rudd handing out $900, even to dead people, um, <laughs> based on your tax return license. But I don't think we'll see that again, or, or pink, dare I suggest, pink bats. Home insulation. So, you know, we do need to do something, and I think Josh Frydenberg's um, mid-year economic statement really is a steady hand on the wheel, the message that we're in control, we are going back to surplus. I think they're wedded to surpluses, whereas really I think perhaps we need to do something to give the economy a bit of a boost. But is that the primary objective? I mean, the figures that came out yesterday, we're now looking at a, a surplus for the 2019-20 year of around $5 billion as opposed to $7 billion. And around $21 billion has been shaved off the, the estimates over the next four years. So revenue receipts would seem to be down a bit. GST receipts are expected to be down. But is it a great thing that we're back in surplus? Um, really, we need to make sure the economy's moving yeah. along and, and we've got productivity measures. And I agree. And, and if we looked at the MEFO documents, I mean, there is the estimate of tax expenditures and still number one on the government and Treasury's estimates of the tax concessions that cost the most money. Now, the principal place of residence still tops out, and if you include the discount on that gain, we're talking about $65 billion. So with one swift stroke of a pen, you could solve our budget problems by taking away the main residence exemption. You'd have a lot of unhappy voters. Oh, it's a no-brainer. No it's a, just politically unsaleable. It's a sacred cow. But if you were, perhaps, to do something, even maybe not take it away, but maybe draw a line in the sand and say, if your residence is over a value of $5 million, pay some tax. If your value of your main residence is under five million, you can have a freebie. So something like that, which will hit some people, those that perhaps can afford to contribute. Yeah, for the benefit of our listeners, the second one below the MRE measures, and I'm combining discount and non-discount yep. together, um, can you share the, the yeah. figures on that? Because that's a huge outlay for the government as well. And again, the concessions we give to superannuation are the next two in terms of the cost to the government. And that's the fact that we don't tax a fund's earnings, so either you're in retirement phase up to the capping of 1.6 now with the transfer balance cap. Uh, so the fact that there's zero tax on earnings if you're in retirement phase and only 15% in accumulation phase. That costs the government at the moment for 1920 a combined 40 billion. And in the forward estimates, that'll get out to about $47 billion. So again, they are pinching super. Remember, we've had a number of changes and reforms over the few past few years. The introduction of the um, transfer balance cap, the lowering of your concessional contributions cap and the non-concessional cap. Uh, so they are doing some things, but there's so much money in super. I mean, we're at $1.7 trillion to $1.8 trillion. And in the SMSF space, that's the greatest component of that. So... There might be more super reforms down the road, but in the... Crystal in the, ball grazing. Yeah. Do you think there'll be tax-free super for withdrawals by the time I get there? Uh, no, I think that's again become a sacred cow. You know, what Costello did in 2006 by saying if you can get to be 60, you can have it tax-free in your own hands, provided you've paid tax along the way. I think that's now pretty well enshrined in our system. 
what I think they might do, and if I was crystal ball gazing and suggesting what's the next big thing, maybe capping the lump sum withdrawal, um, putting a ceiling on how much you can take at once. Which used to be called the reasonable benefit limit. Well, it was a, a capping uh, of some sorts, but you know, with the ageing of the population and our rapidly ageing population, you know, you can't let people take all their super, perhaps blow it quickly, and then put their hand out for a government pension. So do you we, think people do that? Uh, enough of a risk to do it. Now, Josh Frydenberg's commissioned a retirement income review, which we'll get to later on in this chat, but uh, it's a really important piece of work, you know, that how do we fund our retirement? Uh, and we'll come back to that, no doubt. All right, so I'm probably this is the other main measure that came out of MIFO yesterday, and I did have a look uh, through the various tax measures. Most of them were things we already knew about, and they'll things we'll cover in the rest of this discussion. But there was a new announcement that uh, for certain eligible Remedial businesses... Remedial education. ...will send you off to do a course and get you to understand your obligations better instead of imposing financial penalties. So there's some merit in that. Oh, it may, but depends on how vigorous the process is and do I have to you know, be assessed that I took in what was taught to me. Other exams at the end. Yeah, oh, there is, is there an exam process. But I suppose monetary fines are a deterrent. Are they enough of a deterrent? Is it too big a stick? Maybe for small um, misdemeanors, let's call them. You know, a bit of a back-to-school approach, maybe a, a suggestion that works. Well, if you think of a recent tribunal decision, a fellow owed about $40,000 in tax, but due to the GIC continuing to be compounding, he ended up with about $900,000 of GIC that was wiped. Mm. And that's where it can get out of control, that it's totally disproportionate to the debt involved. Well, daily compounding will do that, you know, when it's interest on interest Absolutely. every day. All right, so let's turn our attention to some of the bills that have cleared the Parliament. And look, there are probably three major bills that we've been keeping an eye on. The Treasury Laws Amendment, and these are always such a mouthful, 2019 Tax Integrity and Other Measures Number 1 Bill of 2019, which is what we call an omnibus bill, lots of measures in it. So, Neil, any comments in particular on changes to the small business CGT concessions, vacant land measures, circular trust distributions, and the inability to now use a sell-sat contribution as an SG contribution. They're just some of the major measures yeah. in that bill. Yeah, and I think the one that's caused the most controversy as I've been travelling the country talking to people is the vacant land measure. Uh, the concept I've been talking about is un-Australian. You know, you get assessed on the income, but a provision of the law denies you a deduction. Now, that's just un-Australian. Well, the know? only equivalent I can think of is where it's an illegal activity, yeah. and, and morally we can live with that. I think that's the precedence of saying it's not un heard of it, but that was Francisco La Rosa and his um, deduction for 220000 that was stolen from him. And he went to the High Court and argued that being a businessman, albeit trading in heroin, he was entitled to a deduction for his lost takings. Which he was successful on, but the law Correct. was subsequently changed. So the changes to Division 152 are the Everett assignments. Now, most people have probably shut down doing Everett's. Um, given the Commissioner's approach that said, I'm going to have another look and I'm going to have another crack at it, even though he lost the 1980 decision in the High Court. So the fact that the change in a partnership interest must occur so that the assignee effectively becomes a partner in that practice before you would be able to access Division 152. But if that, that wasn't happening, then this is really just an income-splitting arrangement. Uh, well, but a legally effective income splitting arrangement. Mr Everett was regarded as a god back in 1980 in the 70s because he was successful in his transaction. Um, but the Commissioner's uh, only this morning or yesterday has put out a sheet saying, remember, now that it's law, if you have engaged in one and you took the concession when you shouldn't, as long as you amend within a reasonable time, 
Now that passed on the 28th of October, so a reasonable time is probably coming close now. So he's just put out a little message to people saying, if you have taken the concession and it's now unlawful, come forward and there'll be a sweetheart deal for you. So, so uh, 8th of May 2018 was the change for that. The vacant land measure is the one that's really caused grief. And even though there were 19 amendments through the Senate, I don't think they went far enough. I agree. And uh, so it now is certain situations where people will be assessed on income and legitimate, previously allowable deductions will be denied through 26102. So I think that's a bit harsh and we do need some more amendments. And I don't know why the primary production exemption, which was put in with an amendment, said, but not if there's a house on it. Now, most farmland and businesses of primary production operating on land will probably have a residential property on it, which means you don't get out through the primary production carve-out, which means you've got to rely on that house being used to generate income. Otherwise, you won't get your tax deductions. That's an interesting question, that if there's a house on it, is it even vacant land in the first place? So it all comes back to these definitions. But that's what the law says. It says if there's a residential property on it that's not being used to make money, treat it as not being there. Correct. It's treated as being vacant. But we're going to need to know what a substantial and permanent structure is. Can you go down to Bunnings and buy a shed and say, well, that'll do? Well, someone asked me the other day if I put a caravan on it. No. Is that a substantial structure? <laughs> um, the circulating trust distributions, I haven't seen one for 20 years, so I'm not sure that we really needed to do anything about this. It's, it's blatant, it's artificial, it's contrived. I send the money out, and in some way, shape or form, it ends up coming back to me in the same tax year. I regard this as straight evasion, yeah. and the ATA should be able to do a data yeah. match to identify this. The last measure with sales tax contributions. Uh, yeah. Some employers have been um, disingenuously using this as a, an SG contribution. Well, well, you say disingenuously, but it was the law. So I suppose the government in bringing this one in, it lapsed when the election was called and Parliament was um, uh, terminated for a while. Uh, they called them unscrupulous employers. So they were applying the law, but perhaps this has been talked about being fixed for about four or five years. So it's not surprising. The pub test. Yeah. So, you know, if you take some money out of your own remuner- total remuneration package, you sacrifice some super, then I, as your boss, cannot count that as a contribution towards my SG obligation. And when I have to pay the 9.5%, I will add that salary sacrifice super back to your ordinary time's earnings. Makes sense. All right, on to the next bill. My favourite, Neil. Treasury Laws Amendment, reducing pressure on housing affordability measures. Yeah, it's a bit... The fact that the Senate dealt with this in six minutes seems to be uh, the, the, the attention that the government really gave to these measures and just didn't listen to the lobbying that you and others around the country had been doing. Uh, extensive lobbying. The retrospective nature of it. Now, admittedly, it was announced on May 17, but they're just not understanding that it actually is retrospective to September 85. Now, of course, this is the bill that will deny the main residence exemption to foreign residents. Yeah. Well, if you're a foreign resident at the time of the event, so a lot of our expat community who might have gone overseas to work for a while, it might be an extended absence, but they haven't sold their property. Now, they've got till June next year, 30 June, to complete a transaction. Uh, if they hold the property at 9th of May 17. And to be clear, by complete, we mean CGT events, so signing contractors, all that's required by June 30. And then we've got... uh, So if that's not the case, if you can't sell by then and you've still got it, if you are a foreign resident at the time of the event, you get nothing out of 118B. You just don't get anything for your main residence, even though you may have lived in it for 30 years. So to that extent, it is retrospective. They did pass a couple of things and amendments for some conditions like... 
okay, you went overseas, you became an on-resident, but you've got some terminal illnesses, you've got a, a spouse or a, a child that's got a terminal illness, so you're coming back to Australia. Um, that might be an issue that gives you a bit of relief. Um, or if you needed to sell the property to pay for medical expenses yeah. or you made a decision not to return yeah. to the property. So what they've designated as life events, but that's all within a six-year period. So if you stay, if you've been a foreigner for more than six years, you don't get access to those rules. So a, uh, a, a significant change, but I suppose the government might be thinking, well, foreigners don't vote, so who cares? Look, there'll be issues with deceased estates. So there is a new six-year rule available to them. So if you yeah. happen to die in the first six years, you're fine. If you die outside the six-year period, then again, yeah. your days are zeroed out. Yeah. Record keeping, I think, is going to be the major issue now. Well, if I've got to calculate my gain with proceeds, which is today's information, easily to understand, you know, your, your sale proceeds, a little bit of cost of cost base, your costs of selling, but original cost, and then you've got to factor in your non-deductible, non-capital costs as your third element, but only after August 91. And on your, sta- on your stamp duty, your conveyancing yeah. costs, your improvements, yeah. who's kept records of all of this? When I'm living in it, I don't think I have to. So no record keeping. Uh, to, so I will probably have a bigger gain because I can't support my cost base. The way I'm describing this, Neil, if you've got a, a road near your home and it's an 80k speed limit, and you've been driving on that for the past 20 years and it's all been fine. They change the speed limit tomorrow to 50k. You're now driving on that road, but the issue with the speeding fine, based on a 50k limit in the last 10 years, and mm. an issue is fines based on the fact that you were travelling in yeah. excess of the speed limit. Yeah, it is. That it, is a good analogy. Very unfair. Yeah. Um, and just to let our listeners know, we are putting together a blog article, and this will hit our website in the next few days. So certainly pre-Christmas, there'll be a, a detailed article on the effect of those changes. So on to the next measure, Treasury Laws Amendment 2018 Superannuation Measures Number One. Uh, three main measures in this one to do with some superannuation changes. Yeah, and again, um, a little bit of a controversial element, particularly with one, which is the non-arms length income based on non-arms length expenditure. Now the first change in here is fairly straightforward. If you're a high income earner for multiple employers, there's a process now where you can avoid having to exceed your concessional cap. So I won't go into detail on that. Um, the NALI or the non-arms length income rules apply where a fund, I mean it makes sense, trying to pump money into your super fund to get those concessional rates of tax. Now we're going to look at the other side of the accounting expression, the expenditure side. And so if the fund incurs non-arms length expenditure, we've then got to flip over and say, well what income gets taxed at 45 cents in a dollar? Now if you've got a direct correlation, it's pretty easy. Let's say we have a low interest, limited recourse borrowing arrangement. Well, the asset that was purchased with those loan funds, that income will be taxed at 45. If you've got a rental property and you're not paying for, say, for agents commission because the member's a real estate agent, uh, but the real estate agent's firm is running and managing the rental property. Well, the inc- brokerage on the shares. Yeah, or brokerage. So that is pretty easy to understand. The controversy is, say, an accountant who's got his own SMSF and the fund needs to prepare its accounts, needs to prepare a tax return, and the accountant's practice provides that service and the fund doesn't pay for it. Now the ATO's taken the view that because that expense is of a general nature and doesn't relate specifically to any income of the SMSF, then the entire income will be taxed at 45 cents. Now that is not really what the government intended, I think. Is this madness? It's not madness, it's just an interpretation. You could have said there needs to be a correlation between the expense and certain income, 
So he could have taken the position because it doesn't relate to any specific income, the provision doesn't apply, whereas the ATO has gone the other way and said because it doesn't relate to any specific income, it must relate to all of the income. Now, I don't regard this as the major revenue risk for the government, that accountants are using their own firms to lodge their annual returns. Well, there's arguably, I mean, the EM talked about expenses of a general nature, losses or outgoings, and talked about 8-1 concepts, 8-1. I manage my tax affairs under 25-5, so arguably there's not a correlation between a loss or outgoing. And even preparing your accounts, you're doing that as a statutory obligation under the CIS Act. So I'm fulfilling a statutory obligation rather than incurring a voluntary loss or outgoing. So maybe some water to flow under the bridge on that one. So moving on to some bills that are still before Parliament, meaning Parliament's adjourned and now they're going to sit there at least until the 4th of February. So again, probably three main measures that we're keeping an eye on. The SG amnesty. Well, the amnesty was resurrected without a fanfare at all. You know, we thought it was dead and buried, but on the 18th of September it came back to life. And it has got through the House, but not yet through the Senate. So, as you say, February will be the issue. I think this will get through. The Senate committee's already had a look at it and say, yeah, let's pass it. So it will get through. It was a bit disappointing it didn't get through in the last session uh, this year. Sensibly, at least this time round, rather than an end date, which was previously the 23rd of May this year, they've linked it to Royal Assent of the Bill. Yep. So it's, it runs for six months after Royal Assent, so at least there's still an opportunity, once we've got certainty, to make those disclosures. And um, I think you'd agree, Neil, around the country there's a, a fair bit of non-compliance. Uh, enough to be of a concern. So the tax gap on SG, they estimate somewhere between 3 and $5 billion. Uh, How do you get that much money? Well, you can't audit it. You can't go out and find it. So perhaps the amnesty was the quickest way to get some resolution. And let's face it, it's not the, the poor old members, the one who's missed out. The employee, the boss, hasn't done the right thing for. So offering a free kick uh, will produce a lot more of um, people's retirement nest eggs. The next bill, combating illegal phoenixing. Well, this is one of those big game changes if it gets through, and that's to extend the director penalty regime to unpaid GST, luxury car tax and wine equalisation tax. But if you think about a business that might be struggling in the economy, you know, where do they go for ready cash? Where's the first and port of call to get some hands on some cash? Well, it's the tax obligations that you don't remit to the ATO. The bank of ATO. The bank of the tax office. So I've got no problem with this, but it will be a game changer for those businesses that are struggling out there. The fact that a company's directors can be on the hook for any unpaid GST. Now, I know the ATO put out a fact sheet that said the bill is headed combating illegal phoenixing, so they'll only look at this where there's evidence of phoenix behaviour, but the provision is far broader than that. It's and not worded that way in no, the legislation. No. If a company hasn't paid its GST, the directors could be on the hook for it. Now, a significant change, which is less of a tax measure, but certainly one that affects uh, the economy and our currency, it will be illegal to spend $10,000 or more in cash buying goods or services from the 1st of January. And not yet passed. And not yet passed. So the committee, Senate will look at this in February. Um, it's an interesting observation. I mean, there's civil penalties. I know you mentioned illegality. Um, there will be a knowledge factor determined criminal intent. So a potential two-year jail sentence if you know you've done the wrong thing. And this is on the person both making the payment and receiving it. Correct. And the carve-outs are limited to private consumer-to-consumer transactions. There are a couple of other carve-outs, but that's probably the main one. So Cryptocurrency is another one. Well, why isn't that cash? I mean, they've told us it's cash for every other reason of tax. Now they're saying it's not cash for the yeah. cash limitation. Um, but, yeah, that's, it's going to put some people in a dilemma, perhaps, you know. You win Tatslotto and you want to go out and buy a new car. 
and you're buying a car off a car dealer, or well, you can't give him cash of more than ten grand after the first of January. Well, I'm thinking of the bookies and the gamblers. Well, again, is there going to be some? I mean, by regulation, they can carve out certain transactions. So, I mean, where do we see a cash transaction in the economy of more than ten grand? You know, racetracks, casinos, tradies, and, and, and perhaps and bucky kings. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Illegal activity. So that will limit it, but yeah, not yet passed. So how do we administer the law when it's not yet law? One of the big misconceptions I've found on this one is people think it's confined to a business-to-business dealing, and they've assumed that if a consumer is involved, that's outside these rules. And as you've already said, Mm. it's only consumer-to-consumer that's carved out. The business-to-consumer dealing is still within these rules. Yeah, so you mentioned tradies. If I get a tradie in to do a quote for a reno and he says, oh, it'll cost you 30, and I say, how much for cash? You know, he might bring it down by, you know, let's say to 25, 26, or 10% adjustment. Um, I might be able to pay him in cash. It'll so be an offence. I'll be flippant and say the two of you can share a jail cell yeah. together. Yep. Yeah. All right. Testamentary trusts. We've got uh, a bill that has just recently hit Parliament. And again, uh, this is to plug a loophole, I suppose, that people would take advantage of. If you've got uh, minor beneficiaries being looked after by an instruction in the will creating a testamentary trust, uh, it is a concessional rate of tax. It's not penalised under Division 6AA. So the concession, though, should be for assets that devolve from the deceased person. What was evolving out there were people were pumping assets into a testamentary trust to enjoy the benefit of that concession. So that will no longer apply. Now, that doesn't mean the capital of a testamentary trust can't alter. I mean, you can do DRPs, you know, dividend reinvestment plans. You might have to change the capital to satisfy a particular legacy. You know, one might say to my uh, trustee, you know, I want my youngest kid, you know, he might be 15, wanting that 2,000 BHP shares. But at the time of my death, I don't have 2,000 BHP shares, but I've got plenty of cash. So he races out and buys some. I mean, that will benefit from these concessional rates of tax because effectively it has devolved from the deceased person. The R&D measures have finally been reintroduced into Parliament with a delayed start date now of 1 July 19. Uh, yes, and the idea here... Um, you know, there's a lot of speculation in the press and the economy and the business community about what we should do to stimulate our, you know, clever country tag. You know, we're often known as the clever country, um, but are we doing enough to incentivise the investment in research and development? Now, you can hand out cash, you can um, do all sorts of things to encourage uh, investment in new and bright ideas. We are pretty good at it. We've had some amazing inventions over our journey as a nation. Um, but this R&D change is perhaps pinching that a little bit. Now, they are viewed as positive reforms, but I question whether they really are. One of the concerns that's been raised, and I've got to share this concern, is that the particularly for the larger companies, it's based on their level of intensity, so their level of R&D spending. They said they won't be able to determine at the point of making a decision as to whether they go into a particular investment what their level of spending is until the end of the financial year because it's based on your total expenditure for the year. And you don't really want commercial decisions driven by tax outcomes. I mean, you want to invest in the idea because it can make a lot of money. Mm. Um, But there is a risk because you're going into uncharted waters. I mean, the definition of research and development is you've got an idea that you don't know if it'll work or not based on current knowledge. So whether you are then making that decision based on whether I'm going to get a tax offset or not is probably not ideal. You know, you want the community and the businesses to have a crack and then perhaps... Yeah, whether tax is factored into that should not be an issue. 
And the final bill, which we'll chat about as part of those still before Parliament, the Registries Modernisation and Other Measures Bill, which effectively is going to bring in a new director identification number. Yeah, the DIN regime. Directors out there will be tagged, not necessarily released. So it will allow a little bit more tracking. I mean, if you look at the um, the straw directors that you know came out of the Plutus payroll transaction, those lower level processing companies had directors who basically were picked up from the front bar of a pub. Um, so it will allow easier tracking of directors by tagging them with that director identification number. And look, I don't think there'll be any surprise about the likelihood of that getting through. I think um, it'll probably get support from both parts of Parliament. So proposed measures, look, I think probably the big one that's still hanging over us, and I've got to say seven and a half years on, with a proposed start date of 1 July 2020, the Division 7A reforms, and we are still waiting. Yeah, I've been speculating on whether we might get something that I refer to as the Bateman's Bay dump. So out of Canberra, people go off to their coast and their holidays over Christmas to Bateman's Bay and they clear their desk by releasing whatever is sitting on top of it. But I'm not sure we're going to get the Div 7A, whether it's another consultation paper by Treasury, whether it's an exposure draft, but it's uh, seven months, six and a half months now till the proposed start date. We've had a lot of speculation. We've had a previous Treasury consultation paper that was flawed. Uh, we need to know, again, certainty. So, uh, And that imposed not only the changes to the Div 7A environment, but the legacy issues around your pre-4th of December 97s, your old 108 loans, and your pre-16th of December 09 unpaid present entitlement. So where do we stand? It would and be nice to have some goalposts. The subtrust arrangements and also the 25-year loans. So there are lots of legacy issues that mm. really need to be ironed out. And we need to know that well in advance of the proposed start date. So if we got it... Even next week, I would not be unhappy. I know it's going to cause us a little bit of work over the break, but that's okay. Uh, but yes, we need that sooner rather than later. Well, I'm going to boldly predict, I don't think we're going to see it this side of Christmas. Mm. I think it'll be something that we deal with in the new year. All right, on to reviews. So probably one of the, the big ones we're still waiting on, the public release, and we haven't yet seen this report, the review of the Tax Practitioners Board and the Tax Agent Services Act. The review is complete. And we're now waiting to see what the recommendations are. And I think we all we can do is just wait. So not much to add there, Robin. All right. Look, a couple of minor reviews. We've got uh, a Productivity Commission review of remote area concessions. Uh, we've got a review by the Inspector General of Taxation on the deceased estates and how they've going to look at the way that agents have now lost access to deceased client data with the decommissioning of the agents portal. That functionality isn't available on ATO online services for agents and it's causing a bit of a problem out there for agents that need to prepare date of death returns. Well, often some people, you know, they get a bit behind in their lodgements and sadly they then pass. Well, somebody, the legal personal representative, has the obligation to bring those tax affairs up to date and if they can't get hold of information, it makes it extremely difficult. Um, there was a report on the ABC for someone who died leaving 31 years of outstanding returns. Um, where do you go? How do you start that process? So look, pleasing to see that the Commissioner is going to exercise his remedial power to allow access to this data, but that's not going to be available for about another six months. The review of the retirement income system. Look, much we could say about this, and we'll keep this brief today. Uh, the report will be due by mid-next year. And it is an important piece of work. You know, we are a rapidly ageing population. The age pension is still the government's greatest expense. And so as we get older and we put our hand out for a government pension, with the population so rapidly ageing. I mean, at the moment we've got about one in 10 over 65. In 2050, which is only 30 years away, it'll be one in four. 
Um, so that's a massive ageing of the population and we can't expect all of them to be putting their hand out for a government pension, it's not sustainable. So how do you fund your retirement? Either it's an age pension, it's your own super, or your investments outside of super. And those three pillars, if you like, as the government's calling it, have to work in harmony and not conflicted. Uh, so it is an important piece of work. Um, super, you know, we have been pairing back our capabilities to grow our super by the reduction in the caps, uh, at least from a tax effective viewpoint. Uh, and investing outside of super, um, maybe that's where people are doing it. So do we give concessions such as, you know, selling business assets like Division 152? So it is a pretty important piece of work. Um, the super guarantee rate, which is legislated to rise to 12%, do people, to stimulate the economy, maybe we don't increase it. Maybe we put that money in their pockets now rather than later. So maybe we freeze the increase in the rate. And if that was to occur, it would have to be legislated to change it. And that's because most people's agreements with their employers would say that if the super goes up, their wage actually might go down, which would mean that by increasing the SG rate, people actually take a pay cut. And that depends on your agreement. If your agreement is, you know, remuneration plus super, well, then it won't affect your remuneration. But if your remuneration is inclusive of super, then your salary component will actually diminish as the SG rises. Any comments on the uh, fallout of the Banking Royal Commission, which will continue to dominate government and Treasury's attention into next year? Uh, they're still playing around with it. There's a code of conduct coming in for financial planners. There's a, uh, uh, a disciplinary regime, um, which will probably be 2021. So there's still legacy issues coming out of the Hain Royal Commission. My question will be, will anyone ever face a criminal proceeding? <laughs> uh, you would have to let's take a broad brush and step back and say, did anyone really get hurt? from what happened with the banking insurance and superannuation review. And you'd have to say no one really, I mean, there's been some people lost their jobs and the executives have dropped their pay packets, you know, from 14 million to 13 million. It's tough, isn't it? Yeah, but uh, will there ever be actually anyone held to account? And that's, that's what we're waiting to see, I suppose. Look, a lot of resources of Treasury are going into those reviews. Now, we're still waiting guidance from the ATO, uh, namely, the way that professional practices allocate their profits to partners. That's been uh, probably two years in the pipeline. Uh, you could get me on a soapbox here. This is a bit of discriminatory behaviour from the ATO because this is not personal income. This is a business that makes money. But the Commissioner has always taken the view that as a professional, you should end up with a slice of that pie that's commensurate with your effort. In other words, even though it's a business and you are allowed to play the profits back into a business, the Commissioner wants to see enough money flowing out to the professional person who is engaged in that practice. So if you're selling your widgets instead of your own services? Yeah, because you use your mind perhaps. Now, you put some flags on the beach where we knew it was safe to play, so some safe harbours, you know. There were three of them, but a couple of years ago he did take the flags off the beach and said he was going to put them back. Now, we have been promised by the Tax Office that that will be released by December, and he actually put a year on it, and said December 2019. So as we sit here recording this at the 17th of December, he's got 30, 14 days to, to bring those guidelines out. Now, what that will be is a revision of where it will be safe to play. But I think someone will actually take him on on this because to me, it is discriminatory. Section 100A, and this is reimbursement agreements where very broadly you send your distribution from a trust in one direction and you send the benefit, the cash associated with that distribution in another direction. Now, back in 2014 thereabouts, the profession asked for some guidance on this. 
the ATO said, you sure you want guidance on this? And we said, yep, we really want some guidance on this. So the ATO issued guidance on 100A and the profession said, mm, we don't like your guidance. Mm. Now, it was just a fact sheet, but we are now being told that there is a draft ruling on its way. We are yet to see that. We understand it's going to be released in December. Um, but again, it's going to be interesting to see mm. what position the Commissioner takes on this one. Yeah, and I think that the fundamental concept might be sound. You know, if you really didn't intend to create that entitlement out of a trust and it either finds its way to someone else or it's reimbursed back to the trust, then you've got to question, OK, well, if you didn't really mean to give the beneficiary the money, maybe there should be a tax impost. But it's the carve-out through ordinary commercial and family dealings that's the provision that most people say, well, what does that mean? And that's where the guidance is really... You know, if you've got a family-run business, the idea to plough the profits back into that business. Now, if you're using that trust structure then okay, you know that if you don't distribute the income out to a beneficiary, you're going to cop a penalty rate of tax. So we do the distributions. But is it an ordinary commercial or family dealing to have the money come back to grow that business? But ordinary for that family or ordinary yeah. for families generally? Yeah, so that's where we need the guidance on how the Commissioner views that provision, that carve-out, so subsection 13 and 100A. We've uh, never had judicial guidance on this. Uh, we've had... A few cases on 100A, obviously. 100A, but not on the carve-out. No, not on the carve-out. And those cases that have come before the courts have been pretty clear... Pretty blatant. ...that there was no intention, really, to create the entitlement to the beneficiary. So, Crystal Ball, what does next year look like? As we approach Tax Act's second birthday in October of next year, what might we expect by then? Well, I think 2020's got a nice ring to it. Um, I'd like to see a bit more vision for our tax system and the government and for the country. Um... Yeah, at the moment, I think the political process seems to have outweighed the necessity to perhaps you know, keep the country on a, a solid path and, and are moving forward. You know, the, the times are, are amazing in the world. You know, we've had a bit of a, a slowdown globally. Uh, the relationships between powerful countries has been tense. Uh, I won't say fractured, but tense. So our place in the world, yes, we're still growing. We've, we've got a strong economy. Our, our natural resources are still going well, so commodity prices will drive our economy to a certain extent. But I'd like to see a little bit more vision. Um, you know, I've, I've been hopeful that before I hang up my uh, career in tax that we would have one tax act. You know, and 1997 Income Tax Assessment Act and the 36 Act becomes redundant because we've moved all of those provisions across to the to the brave new world. But I don't think I'm going to see that in my professional life. No, I don't think lifetime. I'll see that in my career. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a bit more vision, a bit more robustness. But if you think about the site, and for anyone who's listening on this podcast and they've been around a while, we're going about a decade of cycles. You know, we need to review the tax system. We need to... So if you go back to 75 at the Asprey Committee, uh, 85, Keating-Hawke, you know, Reform major, major reforms. Uh, 98, not a new tax, a new tax system with John Howard. Uh, Ken Henry in 09, although not much came out of that. Uh, we were supposed to, I suppose, under Turnbull Abbott, Turnbull Abbott, Turnbull Abbott. I'm not repeating myself, I think that's how many. No. Um, you know, we were going to have a major root and branch review of the tax system again. So, you know, maybe it's time, 2020, time another major review of the tax system. So if you hang around long enough, you'll see these. So that's what might happen. We might have another major reform under the tax system. We do need it, you know, and that's taking everything on the table. You know, the indirect tax, so should GST rise? Should direct tax come down and indirect tax go up? Interaction of state taxes. 
Yeah, well, don't again, payroll tax stamp duties, those things. So, you know, what's our vision for 2020? It's a nice ring to it, 2020. It's sort of a watershed year. You could hang a lot of things off that and people would remember them, the 2020 reforms. Um, but are we going to get that or are we going to have the political process supersede that and just say, move towards the next election as we seem to do at the moment in this country? Neil, my closing remarks for the year, what I'd like to see next year. There's been some public remarks by the Assistant Treasurer about striving to improve the interactions between the tax office and practitioners, which is very commendable and, and that's great. But I've made some public comments and these have been reported in Accountants Daily. I'd also like to see improved interaction between the profession and Treasury. Now, practitioners have many more dealings with the tax office than they do with Treasury. That's understandable. Um, it's usually confined to the professional bodies and, and advocates like myself who deal with Treasury. But I'd like to see more of the concerns that are being raised being seriously considered so that we end up with better quality legislation coming out of the whole process. I suppose that's true, Robin, but it's probably over a decade ago now where that, you know, the tax office and their role in legislation and development of legislation was sort of pushed to the side. You know, tax office administers the law, you don't write the law. But, you know, the Office of Parliamentary Council and the, the, the drafting of legislation had everyone's input. Now, sure, the tax office still have input today, but perhaps not as much. To get it right the first time is a pretty good goal to aim for, I think. And there have been some observations that the, the quality of EMs coming out, it shouldn't just be restating the law, there should be lots of examples. There seem to be less tax rulings coming out of the tax office, but more law companion rulings, more practical compliance guidelines. And maybe the content in the LCRs is better placed back in the EMs, and the LCRs should be about how we administer the law, not what the law says. Mm. So maybe just a, a recalibration of some of these publications would and be ideal next year. It's an admirable aim. Hopefully we can do that. All right. Neil, thank you for, for joining me once again to wrap up the year. Uh, for our listeners, I've been chatting with Neil Jones, Director at Tax Banter. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are, because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. I want to take this opportunity to thank you, our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed the show this year. We've certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. I also want to thank Steve Griffiths, our producer, and Lacey Jarvis, our marketing manager, for their assistance throughout the year. We look forward to you joining us again in 2020. TaxYak will return in February. Finally, on behalf of Tax Banter, I'd like to wish you and your families a safe and happy Christmas and a wonderful new year. Mm -hmm.